Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Today on The Argument, should we ban politics from the office? I'm Jane Coaston, and as host of the show, I spend a lot of my time at work talking about politics. My bosses would be pretty mad if I refused to talk about politics. But not all bosses are the same. After the Trump era, a summer of protests over police brutality, and a pandemic that's been politicized at every turn, it's been hard not to bring politics to work, particularly when everything from parental leave to marriage benefits can be, well, political. And I've noticed that as people spent more time talking about the news in remote times on Slack, which is arguably the worst place to talk about the news, there's been a backlash brewing. Companies are cracking down on political debates at work. Maybe the most famous recent example is Basecamp, where co-founders Jason Fried and David Heinemer Hansen, who goes by DHH, took the extreme step of completely barring what they called societal and political discussions on their company-wide communications platform. Other companies have done something similar. Why do they care so much? What's the downside of debate or discomfort at the office? My guests today have answers. Different answers. Liz Wolf is a staff editor at Reason. And Jonathan Nightingale is an author and a founder of Raw Signal Group, which trains leaders and managers. He was a vice president of Firefox at Mozilla. So... It seems like it was thousands of years ago, but it was April of this year, many millions of years. That's when a productivity software company named Basecamp announced that employees should refrain from discussing societal politics at work because it could often get dark and be distracting. They argued that employees could use other systems. They could still tweet about politics. They could talk to each other on Signal and elsewhere and made the point we are not a social impact company. They also ended what the CEO of Basecamp returned to as paternalistic benefits like fitness stipends and allowances for education. And in the aftermath of this decision, about 20 employees decided to leave and take buyouts out of about 60. So that's about a third of their workforce at the time. And you both wrote responses to the Basecamp decision. There was a lot of conversation about it on Twitter, as there is about many things. Liz, you said it was totally fine and kind of meshed with how you think about politics at work. Why? I really look at Basecamp's decision as a recusal more than anything else. I think they're drawing pretty reasonable lines. Some work issues are super inherently political. Labor issues, issues with pay gaps, issues with, God forbid, workplace sexual harassment and other stuff like that. And they're not saying that any of those things are verboten or off limits at all. They'd be running afoul of like a gazillion labor laws if they did. What they're saying instead is that this sort of gratuitous political discussion is unrelated to the project that they're there to do together. And I think that's really important. I think a lot of people really seek to make their workplace a place where they can be their whole selves, where they can rely on their their colleagues for support, where they can talk about all these sort of unrelated and, you know, issues where a lot of people disagree. And I think it's a really good thing for people to be able to, especially in managerial positions, 
draw some of these boundaries, draw some of these lines, and basically say that these employees are adults and they expect them to attempt to suss out the relevant boundary between gratuitous political discussion that's unrelated to the work matters at hand versus, you know, all the things that are directly related to their job duties. Jonathan, you described this decision as being disappointing. Can you explain why? Yeah, I guess it comes down to a couple things for me. One, I think it's disappointing because when you listen to the employees in those companies, they express disappointment, right? And I run a company where we train bosses all day, every day on how to do their jobs, right? Most bosses are given very little training and they're trying their best, but they're figuring it out as they go. And one of the things that we talk to them about is like, you want to build a world-class team. You want people like super engaged and, and like driving your business forward. Liz said it. They want to bring their whole selves to work, right? And maybe they want to debate crime statistics in the abstract, maybe. But a lot of the time, the thing that they are an expert in is their own experience. And that if there's race riots happening across the country, that's reading on their experience, their day-to-day, and they may want to talk about that. We tell them when we recruit them, we're a different kind of company. I mean, Basecamp in particular, David and Jason, the, the founders, have made a brand out of how alt they are about the way they run their business. And a lot of people are really drawn to this, like, enlightened notion of management and leadership. And they're like, oh, we, it's, we're going to bait and switch. We're going to change the rules. Yes, you thought this was a different kind of company. Um, not anymore. Some of the reason why not anymore is because it makes us uncomfortable. Some of the discussions didn't go the way that we wanted them to. We feel like we want to get rid of that. It's one thing to write that email, that blog post. It's another thing to say to every leader in the organization, do you have the tools to draw a clear line there? No politics, right? We're not allowed to talk about politics unrelated to our core mission. Are we allowed to talk about who our customers are? That's political, right? Maybe we're not allowed to talk about that. Are we allowed to talk about the football game that we watched on the weekend? Yes. What if somebody kneeled? Are we allowed to talk about that? No. All of that complexity, you can't just make it disappear because you wrote a blog post. And what ends up happening experientially when we talk to these leaders is they all develop their own interpretation of it. And it gets really unevenly applied. And people have a really awful and ambiguous experience at work. You are bringing up very reasonable questions about this. DHH and Jason Fried were pretty explicit about the idea that this isn't going to be perfectly executed. It's not going to always be cut and dry. But they're expecting adults to do a reasonable job of figuring out what these lines and what these boundaries are. And I think it's also worth going back to sort of the original instigating event from what we can tell, which is in 2009, employees at the company circulated a list of funny-sounding names where they mocked them. You know, they were unkind. It was, I think, a list of customer names. So very bad optics now that that's released, right? Obviously. But basically, you know, there were employees who engaged in sort of a public reckoning about their former involvement in this list, I think 12 years ago, ultimately posting an apology for their involvement and the Anti-Defamation League's Pyramid of Hate, which places mocking and silly name-calling and sort of the microaggressions lumped within on the bottom of the pyramid, and then in ascending order of of severity, you know, they put genocide at the very top. And so I think what DHH and Jason Fried objected to, and they were pretty explicit about this, was this sense of, yeah, we atone for the fact that people at our company engaged in really juvenile, really crappy behavior about customers' names. That's not a cool thing to do. But for employees to in any way context collapse this and equate this with something much more severe than it is, you know, the first step on the path to genocide or toward acts of hatred is a little bit crazy. So I really think, like, that's the context that I keep coming back to when trying to gauge whether their reactions were appropriate. 
that disagreement wasn't about politics. Like, it wasn't about Medicare for all. It was about something happening at the company. Like, it was about this list of names and then the formation of diversity, equity, and inclusion committees, which this blog post then essentially said, like, that's over now. That's the challenge I'm having here, is that this isn't about, like, you taking over the office to have a giant argument about how much you hate Elizabeth Warren, but this was work-related political discourse. Is there a difference there to you, Liz? It's sort of work-related political discourse, right? But it really, the employees could have just done an apology, issued an apology for saying, you know, saying 12 years ago, I was juvenile. I mocked names. Sorry about that. I won't do it again. And they didn't have to bring this sort of broader ADL pyramid discussion of white supremacy and and racism and all of these things that they began to lump into this as part of their DEI initiative. It really snowballed from being something, in my view, something that was specific, but they were sort of broadening it beyond that and converting it into this much bigger thing in a manner that really seemed disproportionate to the scale of the initial incident, the initial grievance, all things considered, not that bad. It's a dumb thing to do, but it's not an evil or insidious thing to do. I can understand how these types of aggressions really stack up and begin to make people feel unwelcome. But I think maybe what Jason Fried and DHH were both reacting to was this sense that people are using this as like a news hook to talk about other issues related to their DEI committee that they're forming in a manner that's not actually super relevant to the apology that they're trying to give to their colleagues. You know, it's interesting. The I don't know what was in DJ and Jason's mind when they when they made the decision, but one of the things that came out was this all hands they had four days after the blog post went live, right? And, and it, it got heated. And the leaders of that organization were asked whether they condemned white supremacy. It, it got there, right? Somebody brought it up and, and said, well, can we at least be clear on that? As an organization, can we at least be clear on that? That like, this is not a white supremacist organization, that it doesn't have a place here. And they, they couldn't answer. The reporting, at least, and I wasn't in the room, but the reporting, at least, was that they hesitated to answer because they just finished saying, we're not going to talk about politics. And now they get challenged on this thing that, that feels pretty straightforward that you would want, I would want my executives to be able to answer very quickly on And they couldn't because now we've created a line. And are we allowed to cross the line that other people aren't allowed to cross? And so it's interesting as a case, but I'm I'm more interested in the general question because people are trying to turn this into an example. Look, they did it. Can I do it? One thing we should look at, Jane, you said it in your setup, is that it didn't go well, right? I mean, maybe over the long term, they'll, they'll pat themselves on the back for it. But in the short term, it's an operational catastrophe to have a third of your company quit. Like, that's just an objective fact. You screwed up if a third of your company quits within a two-week period. So I I am interested, Jonathan, you made a point in your piece um, that these political discussions are often related to diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts or other areas that have to do with who people are at work. And how does cutting off political discussions or even kind of picking and choosing what's political and what's not, how does that affect that work in your view? I've never met a company doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work seriously, taking it seriously, who didn't find it really uncomfortable. And so if what we're responding to, if what these CEOs are responding to is that these conversations get uncomfortable, that the people's feelings are hurt, that people feel like, you know, they're, they're barked at for not having done enough work on it, then I, I feel like even in the general case, you're going to have a really hard time. DEI at work is inherently really a political question about like, what is the role of the corporation in dismantling 
systemic problems that that are throughout society, right? Where do we draw that line? And and anybody with a DEI team, anybody with a DEI effort is saying, I get it. And like how good I am at that, how much research I've done on that, whether I'm the expert or need to bring in experts, those are all fair game questions. But as soon as you're engaging as an organization to change the status quo, like I don't know, I don't know how that's not political. And so if you tell me that I'm not allowed to talk about it, then I think probably what happens is that that effort really gets stifled, right? We've stifled that. But like, if, I hope not, but if something really toxic is happening, well, we've made sure that nobody can see it now, right? Because the the conversation was supposed to be illegal in the first place. Liz mentioned it. Like, you want to hope that people will be respectful, that people are not going to like bring awful, hateful things into their workplace, right? But she also mentioned, you know, sexual harassment. We've got all kinds of laws about that already. It hasn't meant it doesn't happen. Yeah, I think it's worth noting that we're not talking about, like, boomer coal miners in West Virginia. Like, not that there's anything wrong with them, but we're talking about people like the three of us, right? Like, I'm when I think about— Yeah, but the three of us could also be, like, ignorant jerks. Like, let's be real. I think we we all live in major cities where we have met many people— who do the thing of like, uh, you know, like I'm extremely woke. And those are the same people who tried to touch my hair. So like, I I just want to be clear here that this can happen anywhere. That's true. But I do think we might be catastrophizing a little bit. Like you were talking about the question of whether or not DHH and Jason Freed were comfortable condemning white supremacy and how they were uncomfortable condemning it. It seems a little bit weird uh, and non sequitur for your employees to say, oh, but you haven't condemned white supremacy today. It's like, I haven't condemned white supremacy this week or this month. Do I need to be going and doing that? It seems a little bit out of left field. And I want to introduce the idea that maybe there's a little bit of a generational, definitional, and even dispositional uh, difference in how people approach these issues. I think as a point of order, we should condemn white supremacy. But uh... <laughs> We should do it for this podcast just once and for all. But... We did it. It's done. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. We're very opposed. <laughs> um, but Liz, I, I, the definitional issue that you're pointing to, I think that's the root of the whole thing. When Jane asks us about like political discussions at work, I think if you come up with a clean definition of politics, you'd be making some progress, but I think you're going to have a lot of trouble doing it. In fact, like I think it's, it's fundamentally impossible because, because I think my experience coming up as a, a straight white guy in tech in Toronto is going to be really different in terms of where politics reads on my career success, where it reads on whether I get an interview when I send a resume in, like where it reads on my day-to-day treatment. The definition that I would apply to what's political discourse at work might might eliminate whole elements of you being able to talk about what it is to live and work at this company. In a lot of places, there's kind of like the er employee. And in general, that's white heterosexual men. And white heterosexual men can be very good, nice people. I'm a big fan. But it also means that there are going to be moments where, like, anything that is not that is treated as if they, you know, non-white, non-straight, non-male people can't be objective about certain issues. Or there's this idea that adding them into the mix has just made everything too complicated. That idea that, like, lack of animosity, lack of discord is more important than, than what? Than expressing this stuff. I think that bears a lot of challenging. Yeah, I I see it as somewhat concerning when people begin to rely on work as the source of fulfillment or moral guidance or community. 
I think there's obviously some amount of community that we necessarily get from work if we like it there and if we are friends with some of our colleagues. But the thing I just keep coming back to is this idea that when that employment is severed, whether it's voluntary or involuntary, whether people move jobs of their own volition, of their own accord, or whether they're fired or laid off, I think it can really feel like the rug has been pulled out from under people to lose that source of support, that network. And I think it's really important that we sort of allow people to draw some of those healthy boundaries, maybe even encourage them to draw some boundaries, to be able to still lean on their their church community or their friends or their family, uh, as opposed to just their colleagues. I often tell people it's important to remember that work is not your family. It's not. You can be fired from your job. In most cases, you cannot be fired from your family. When I have experienced job loss before, it was the people who had nothing to do with my work who were there to support me. If you are working at Google or on like the Facebook campus, there is a beautiful cafeteria and you get smoothies all the time. But the expectation, again, is that you will work 18, 19 hours a day and that will be praised, then I think that it's very challenging to have that, well, you know, it's clock out, this isn't your life. Because at a certain point, if you're constantly available, it kind of is what you do. Jonathan, is this a tech issue? You mentioned in your piece that this tends to be this familiar recipe, that you found a tech company, you market the company as being at the forefront of a new way of working, you have a big mission, You recruit employees who want to do good work for a good company, but everyone defines good differently. The employees are like, we want to make it a better place. And then they start doing like diversity, equity, inclusion work. And then things get complicated. And then everyone's like, as you said, like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You know, if you're working 16 hours a day for this company or if you're suddenly on their careers page, right? If you're suddenly the the face that we put up because we want to attract more people because we've got... DEI targets that someone's trying to hit so they get their bonus, right? Is it part of my life if, if you're literally using my person, my face, and my body to promote your organization? Like, I feel like there's a pretty tight tie there. Been there. Right? <laughs> and, and in that moment, what you're seeing is, yeah, yes, people have uh, hammocks, and yes, people have catered lunches. 15 years ago, that was our strategy for attracting top talent, and it's shifted now. Like, how is it that these companies that pay their employees so exorbitantly and like give them all kinds of benefits are seeing unionization drives that they haven't seen before. And a part of it is because those people are realizing their labor is supporting things they're not happy with. Their labor is supporting censorship regimes that they're not happy with. Their labor is supporting weaponry development that they're not happy with. And they're saying like, we're going to take our labor elsewhere. Don't worry about us. We will find a new family in a real hurry. The thing that you're identifying as a problem, this sort of exodus of employees, is something that I look at as maybe a really good thing. It might be a short-term painful thing, but a really valuable long-term move because, I, I mean, these people are getting generous severance. People who stayed at the company for longer than three years got six months' salary of severance. People who were under three years got three months' salary severance. It was sort of this interesting sorting that we saw where basically those who were on board with the sort of reorientation, the recalibrating of the company, were able to stay and to understand, okay, we're doubling back down on the shared project that we're doing together. And those who didn't want to do that got six months of runway to be able to look for other stuff. And frankly, you look at a lot of these ex-employee Twitter threads, and you had hordes of hiring managers reaching out to them afterwards saying, oh, 
you know, they're not going to appreciate you. Your values, your wanting to create a DEI committee is fully aligned with what we're trying to do over here. It's kind of a win. I'm happy for those employees that they found soft landings. I think if you go back and you read it, especially during those two weeks, you see a lot of them talk about fear and heartbreak. And like, I don't think in that moment they're having a great time or happy with the decision. But having said that, if you genuinely feel that, if you as an executive feel like it's, it's odious, obnoxious, unpleasant, whatever, to have people talking about the fact that they're having a really hard time at work after George Floyd protests, then I hope you do say it out loud. I hope you say out loud, like, that's not welcome here. I'm not an employer that's making space for that. So that we all know. And like the employees who left, they got new jobs. But what's really important is that new employees going in know what kind of executives they're working for. As we begin to emerge from the pandemic, work culture, as many of us know it, might never be the same. Tell me all about it in a voicemail by calling 347-915-4324. And we might play an excerpt of it on a future episode. Drexel University infuses academics with the power of real experience. Through Drexel's renowned cooperative education program, students are empowered to test drive future careers and discover the perfect profession before graduation. By embracing experiential education, this Philadelphia institution has created a practical yet transformative academic model that inspires intellectual exploration and yields undeniable results. More at drexel.edu. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. Jonathan, I wanted to ask you, is there a good argument that you can make for these decisions? Well, I'll tell you, one of the worst brands in organizational psychology is psychological safety. Everybody hears that term and they're like, this is about babying people. This is about like treating everybody with mittens and and making sure every wall is padded. And like, it's not what it means. Psychological safety is this body of research that says teams tend to outperform when they know what the rules are, when they know what is expected of them when they know what happens if they fail. A lot of the research about like, I feel confident that I can bring my whole self to work. I feel confident that my manager sees my achievements and that they're important. I feel confident that I can succeed in this organization correlate back to how clear am I about the expectations? Do I know what happens if I screw up? Do I know what's allowed and what's not allowed? And so if you can articulate that, there's health in that, but you need to be clear, right? Even if you say that, I think you're going to see really uneven enforcement of that. And Liz, I think we could both name lots of cases where people with sort of heterodox views get disproportionate enforcement of policies that other people are totally allowed to get away with. And like that undermines psychological safety a lot because now I've got to spend all my time on how much my boss makes eye contact with me and how much they interrupt me because I I don't have a clear sense of like what's in bounds and what's out of bounds. 
they're not saying that people can't ever say, hey, I'm feeling a little bit down because of something in the news this week, or I feel hurt by somebody else being exclusionary to me, or even, you know, I'm dealing with this really challenging difficulty in my life that has to do with a specific identity that that I hold or a group that I'm part of. I get the sense that they're saying, hey, that Daily Beast article that you really want to share in that Slack channel that's about the struggles for voting rights in various red states— that's not really related to us making password management software. I do think that does run the risk of uneven enforcement. And I think they have to approach it with a certain posture of humility to be able to execute it well. That's the thing I really worry about. It's not how Liz interprets it carefully. It's not how we interpret it when we're spending like enough time to really digest it. It's how does a newly promoted manager who's got two people at a team lunch talking about something interpret it? And is it the same for every newly minted manager and every director and every VP within that organization because my experience is it's not. And it's worth saying that's what drives a lot of this DEI stuff in the first place. A lot of the struggles that organizations are having is because like people are not given equal treatment. People are not given a fair shake, right? If a resume sounds like it's got a racialized name, I'm less likely to call that person. From the moment they touch my hiring pipeline all the way through their career progression in the organization to the day they get fired or leave, they're not getting equal treatment. And to take something as big as politics and say, we're adding that to the ways that like management can discretionarily permit or dispermit, I don't disagree that some of those conversations don't go anywhere. I just think that you're doing so much more damage in service of resolving that. Jonathan, what would a preemptive strategy in your mind, what would a better one look like? It's big. If we had started from, instead of it's unpleasant and I want to resolve that, if we had started from, I'm leading a diverse organization and I feel like I'm under-equipped to do that, and the solution is not I will drop a hammer on my organization, the solution is I will go get equipped, genuinely, I think that'd be really powerful. I think if you invested in that and then invested in that for the rest of the organization as well, that 20-person DEI committee, I don't know what they were doing, the people who were on that committee at base camp said they hadn't done anything before the committee was disbanded. It's not like they'd done something really controversial. I don't know if that committee would have suggested resources and tools that were base camp appropriate and like aligned with the identities of the people working in the company so that we could all get to a more fulsome understanding of it. And they don't have to do any of this. None of this is legally required outside of basic labor law stuff. I'm not a labor lawyer, but I don't <laughs> think they have to, right. right? I think that like, I wish they would choose to because I, I would want to work with that company. One thing that I sort of am curious about is like, I mean, I've been combing through the data that I can find on DEI initiatives and trying to get a better sense of like, do we have evidence that suggests that these things that are really vogue right now, do we have evidence to suggest that they work super well? I would be very curious to see what the DEI folks at Basecamp would have come up with, what their ideas were, because I think that there are a lot of companies in this that when we talk about politics or diversity at work, there is an easy road, which is either you can't talk about it or you have to do it in these specific ways. And there's a much harder road, which is like, you're going to have to deal with some people who are like, hey, remember that time that you assumed X and Y about me because of my name? Or you asked me where I was from and I'm from like Dubuque. That's something that I've seen companies do time and time and time again, where it's like, well, we could do the hard thing or we could do the way easier thing. 
I think there are so many creative ways that companies could do that, like scrapping degree requirements. But I mean, a lot of us just aren't willing to have that conversation, right? We're really interested in the performative side, but not as interested in this class and and race side that I think is really important where people could actually sort of cut to the chase. For what it's worth, that's the thing that we talk to bosses about directly. We talk to them about like, why go look at your job descriptions and tell me what that degree requirement is doing as a proxy. And while you're at it, go find out if you've got something in your offer letters about you have to explicitly say that you've never been convicted of a criminal offense for which you haven't received a pardon. What work is that doing, right? Like, what, what is that doing in terms of the makeup of your candidate pool and how many people are bouncing off of it? And how many of them are lying to you because they can't say yes to that and lose another job, right? That stuff comes up. And Jane, I would, I would agree. Like, tech is full of stories of founders who would rather jeopardize their entire business than go to therapy, would rather jeopardize their entire business than have someone very junior tell them that they're screwing up and that they've built a company that is less of a dream than it appears to be on their careers page. The only power the employee has is to quit and you're seeing them use it. But that's also a lot of power to give to really junior people, not to work against myself because I'm a more junior person, all things considered. I think you are tapping into a really important point, Jonathan, which is like, who holds the power? Are they the right people to hold that power? Are there checks on the way they're wielding that power? The way I would flip that a little bit is like, we're also in a moment where people like me or people like me who are Asian or who are Black or what have you have a lot of power to wield. And it sort of sometimes seems like we're giving a lot of power to people who have a lot of complaints but aren't necessarily super judicious with their concept of what a workplace ought to provide them. I'm curious, Liz, what would your ideal workplace look like? Well, I have to answer reason, reason. right? Like, I'm not allowed to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think for me— uh, I mean, I'm a pretty high-conflict personality, just, uh, you know, truth be told. Like, I've always thought I would get along really well with lawyers because I think that ability to state your case, to uh, go back and forth, but then also to be resilient afterward and to recognize that you can have these very high-level discussions that are theoretical where you stake out a claim and you defend it, but it's not necessarily a reflection of what you believe. It's just sort of something you're workshopping. An environment that's really robust in that area would work well for me. So, frankly— a place like Basecamp probably would be a terrible fit, in part because they would never hire me because I don't have the skills that are relevant to what they're doing there. But one of the things that I do also value is the ability of some employees to say, hey, we need you to grow and change in this way. We need you to investigate this grievance that we have. Where there's also room for that person to do all of that reading and learning and then come back and say, I still disagree. And here's why. I think that back and forth is good because we're in the placating mode. And I don't think that's healthy. I don't think it's productive. There's one thing you said that I just wanted to underline there, Liz. From the way they talk about it, I think that a lot of leaders in general, but, but tech is often at the vanguard for this stuff just because our workplace is so mobile and just because it's such a sought-after industry at the moment. I think a lot of leaders in tech view the conversation, I'm not putting it on you, but view the conversation in the terms that you used in terms of like, we can go back and forth on it and then we can recover afterwards. Like we're, we're having a debate about it. it. It's okay for us to disagree in the context of that. It's not, it's not a personal attack. And what I consistently hear from the people that we work with is that for them, it's, it is personal. We can have a debate about politics at work, but like when we go home, you can go to work tomorrow, and if politics isn't a part of your day, that's okay. And if I come to work tomorrow and politics isn't a part of my day, then I am not included here, right? And not because it's like a hobby, but because it's like I, I can't wash it off. It's who I am, and, and I need to be able to talk about that because I need to be able to advocate for things like our health benefits don't cover same-sex spouses or, 
we've got maternal leave, but we don't have paternal leave. Which is something that should totally be on limits, and they have to be, right? They have to be. and Like, I totally agree. And I think we need to be so confident that every manager is going to feel that way. And I think it's really hard to do that from a, a blanket ban on speech. And with that, Liz, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me for talking about politics at work while working at work. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jane. Liz Wolf is a senior editor at Reason, and Jonathan Nightingale is an author and co-founder of Raw Signal Group. You should read Liz's piece in Reason and Jonathan's newsletter on the Basecamp decision. There's great reporting on the Basecamp decision by Casey Newton on The Verge. You can find links in our episode notes. Finally, here's what some of you had to say about bringing your whole self to work. Hi, my name's Annette. I'm from Baltimore. I have realized that as a woman in my 30s who's just been diagnosed with autism, I have never been myself at work, and I am so excited that my company is giving me the opportunity to continue working from home, where I'm so much more productive, and I'm so much more comfortable, and I'm so much less stressed because I'm at home not trying to be someone I'm not. Hi, my name is Dan Santum. I live in SeaTac, Washington, and over time, as I've gained tenure and seniority in my position, I've brought more and more of my personal self to work and let less of work into my personal life. And I feel like that's sort of endemic in my organization. And I believe that actually, as a whole, our organization is becoming more innovative and more responsive as we become more accustomed to seeing our actual selves instead of our business selves. Hi, my name is Angie, and I'm from Portland, Oregon. And the times that I felt like I couldn't be myself at work were certainly related to being a working mom. It's really challenging sometimes to be taken seriously, especially when you have a newborn, toddlers, and then you find yourself hiding those parts of who you are and not sharing the joy that you're experiencing at the most important times of your life. So, yeah, working motherhood, you hide a lot. My name is Mukosi. I am from Washington, D.C. On the subject of how much of myself do I bring to work, being the child of two immigrants from separate nations who came here to find a life and somehow found each other, my upbringing was not typical. So I think it's in my best interest to make sure that I'm personable, amenable, professional, and that's pretty much it. The Argument is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Phoebe Lett, Elisa Gutierrez, and Vishaka Durba. Edited by Alison Brzezik, Sarah Geis, and Paula Schumann. With original music and sound design by Isaac Jones. Mixing by Carol Saburau. Fact-checking by Jordan Reed. And audience strategy by Shannon Busta. Special thanks this week to Kristen Lynn. <laughs>